Thank you to our sponsors for supporting this episode of Troxel, BQE Core, and Avail. We'll share more about them later on in the episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. Josh Weiss of LA Creative Technologies joins me in this episode to talk shop about information technology in architecture and engineering offices. Let me get this out right in the beginning. This is a conversation centered on practical stuff that many people who are busy doing the work often struggle with because of time. And let's get real. It's not seen as the core of the business, but maybe it should. Josh and I, well, mainly Josh, cover a lot of the basic best practices that have emerged in the last couple of years. You can hear that as COVID and work from home and hybrid work in regards to technology as investment versus expense, privacy and security, the risks and rewards of being in the cloud, hardware and software setup recommendations, leasing versus buying hardware, recommended AV setups for working from anywhere, cloud-based file management and collaboration software, two-factor authentication and password managers, project information management software, and even building access control recommendations. So we cover a lot in this conversation. And again, I think this stuff is not really thought of because it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind. But I think everybody needs to take a little bit of time and figure this stuff out so that you can be set up in a much better and more prepared way for anything that happens. So without further ado, I bring you my wide-ranging conversation with Josh Weiss. All right, Josh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Evan, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. I'm a big fan. It's been a few couple years, few years. I don't even know. Like the time is a blur. We we, we spoke together on panel at, uh, I think it was a Keller Pacific. Um, it was a Keller Pacific event that I think was in late January 2020. And the was before really? times. 2020? Yeah, the before times. <laughs> <laughs> It was one of the last presentations uh, yeah, before yeah. the pandemic that I did. Yeah, that was in downtown LA, and we have some mutual friends in the in those circles, and so it's it's fantastic to kind of come back to to this. And you, I know that you are heavily involved on the IT side of things when it comes to architectural practice, and um, I thought maybe you could just give a little bit of a background on how you got into that. How did you get here? Because ultimately I think our conversation will lead to a lot of lessons learned and in hopes of getting people to not have to worry about starting from a blank page when it comes to how we do what we do as far as, you know, the means to the end side of things on the technology side, but, but also just because this is all, kind of table stake stuff now and it would be great for us to be able to move on to bigger and better things um, so anyway josh please jump into it yeah of course so i mean i've had kind of a fun uh, roundabout way to ending up towards an, an it firm that focuses on architects um i got started in technology like a good 20 years ago working in nonprofit radio actually and so I was working in radio stations and I was also uh, an event producer and a DJ. And so I was always very involved in creative worlds, whether they were music or, or production or design or what have you. And as my career meandered from those places into starting my own IT business about 15 years ago, um, I had lived in Santa Cruz, California for a while. I lived in Guatemala. I had some fun bouncing around, but I landed back in my hometown of Los Angeles back in uh, 2008 and, you know, went around from just helping people remove viruses off their computers and helping grandma with her iTunes and sort of just was like, I'm going to start a business and, and see what sticks. 
Um, and as that transitioned from a residential IT business into a um, a business focused solely on businesses, um, the first client that I got that was a business was a historic renovation architecture firm in downtown LA. And, and that was it, man. Like then that just <laughs> carved this rut and you've ridden it ever since. That's amazing. I mean, it's really interesting that that happened. I mean, it wasn't what I, what I predicted, but it's, it's funny for me as someone who was like a complete uh, urban planning and architecture nerd and have always been, I, I grew up in Carthay circle, which is a historic neighborhood in Los Angeles. And we were that we were the first neighborhood built in the twenties to have underground utilities in the United States. And, you know, we were in the Smithsonian. And so, like, I was this geeky kid in elementary school doing reports about my neighborhood. And I always had this, like, amazing sort of inclination towards looking around me and, and loving buildings and knowing architectural styles and things like that. So it was always just, like, a hobby of mine. And I was so geeked that as I, like, landed in business IT, like, almost 15 years ago, I got to an architecture firm. And so I just had to do a lot of learning on the fly. And it was sort of by supporting that business and, you know, knowing nothing about Autodesk licensing and sort of like the right graphics cards for things. And it was just like really like, you know, trial by fire completely. Um, And it was that working for that company sort of gave us this context that over time, as we've supported more and more architects, I've realized that there's very, very few people in my industry um, who know architects, you know? And so I know you had one of those people on the show a couple months ago. I have another colleague in New York, runs a company called Agile IT, which is, uh, you know, focused solely on architects and designers. But there's very few people who know it. And it's so specific to understand the right machines to do your workflows on, um, how to deal with the licensing, just how to procure things, how to deal with, like, I mean, it's such basic stuff, but so many people in my industry work for doctors, they work for lawyers, they work for accountants. Um, they work for people in these industries that are maybe require HIPAA compliance or, you know, they're, you know, whatever it is, people are drawn to other industries. And because of my background, I've essentially, our company focuses entirely now on architects and cultural nonprofits that kind of, you know, peek back to my cultural arts background. And it, it really worked out really well because, because creatives and designers are people that myself and my team get along with really well and have a shared context with. And we just know all the, all the geeky architecture stuff more and more now. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And I, I imagine things have changed a lot since you started with that first architecture firm. 15 years ago, as far as how things are set up and the way licensing works and subscription models versus perpetual licenses and things in the cloud versus on-prem. And I I think all of this stuff, it's interesting to me even to think about outsourcing IT from a, from a firm standpoint. And I could see that being really beneficial for small and medium-sized firms who don't necessarily want to have somebody on staff doing that all the time, but still want to have somebody who knows their business, right? That to me is a, is a huge advantage. And I would imagine that there's probably a lot of shared lessons learned across all of those clients that really helps not start from zero. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if we look back to that first client, it's something that is basically unheard of now where you have someone who's got in the vicinity of 10 to 15 employees and you know, at that time, a firm like that had to have a window server in a closet. Everything had to be on premises. Nothing is in the cloud. Maybe you've got your email on some, you know, pop three server somewhere in the cloud. You're not using Exchange. And everything is just like, you know, just peeking its way into the cloud, but no one can work off site. No one's working on a laptop. And oops. And that was that was just the norm back then was that you're going to have, how can I say this, is that you're, you're bound to the office and everything is done sort of off this server with no tentacles like reaching out into the ether. And I was coming in from a place where 
I had been living abroad for a while and, you know, other people that I worked with were already sort of like working, working out of Google and were working out of Dropbox and people were like working in these much more um, streamlined ways. And to see the architecture firms, they were sort of like in a way the most behind because they were more bound to being on premises. And also just kind of a late adopter mentality in general. They want somebody else to prove it before before they're willing to even look at it. And I'm seeing that a lot, actually. I mean, to this day, I think it's something that I see more with my architecture clients than with other clients that I work with. And I think maybe it comes down to the mentality of the firm ownership, perhaps. But it's something that I see a lot. I mean, you know, obviously the last two years have really done wonders for cloud adoption in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I bet you have a lot of good stories there. But I mean, we just finished, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about that client that I'm talking about, that first architecture client. We actually just finished migrating their file services to the cloud just a few months ago because the firm ownership was like, well, you know, my people can remote into their desktops and do their work. This pandemic's going to go away. We don't necessarily want to, you know, open things up. And and I think, you know, one thing that's worth mentioning for the architectural practice specifically is that designers collaborate well in person. It's something that I hear a lot, right? And that you could lose something potentially in a practice if there's a dispersed workforce and there's not a good way for them, you know, for someone more senior to train somebody more junior, just as an example, that's something that I've heard. And, you know, I know there's ways around that, but that's some of the pushback that I've heard over the years comes around needing people to be next to each other. And like, how do you feel about that, Evan? That's a total general, I think that's a shared attitude. I think that that's, it's it's a really strong pull because that's how those generations grew up in the profession and that's how they trained people. And that's how information got passed along so that uh, because there wasn't easy ways to communicate and have uh, internet at your fingertips and information at your fingertips or, and, and, and like you said, everything was tethered. Right. So um, I, th- I was thinking back to the early days of, of running on 386s and 486s in the office. Right. And, and running on a, on a Novell network and um, you were never allowed to run, copy anything to your local station. It was always running off the server. Why? Because the server was the only thing that got backed up. Right. And, and so, I mean, for insurance purposes, basically, um, and that was all backed up on tape. And then those every, you know, whatever the frequency was, those tapes were put into a car and taken to an offsite storage facility and, rotated on the shelves and i mean that's that was the it department in that firm it was really interesting and that goes much farther i mean when i started with that firm around 2010 that i'm talking about they were still backing up to tape still someone was still taking that tape home and you know we we got them onto a proper backup system where there's you know, some, some premise backup and some cloud backup, but you know, that, that pushes much farther than, than 386s and 486s. Yeah. Yeah. I also think about how nowadays, like the alternative to there's one place to put your files, which is what I was just talking about to now there's dozens of places where your files could be. They could be on your computer. They could be in your Dropbox. They could be on your OneDrive, they could be in Teams, they could be on SharePoint, they could be on the server in the office that you VPN into, they could be, oh my gosh, it's, it's, that is, then leads to digital fatigue because nobody knows where to put their stuff and, and it's kind of the wild west for, for that kind of thing. I think depending on the size of the office, you could have a completely different set of problems. And that also sounds like a major security and compliance issue, right? Right. Because no one <laughs> knows where anything is. Right. I mean, I'll tell you something that I saw a lot when the pandemic started and just, you know, from just like speaking to a lot of people who we worked with or prospects or just colleagues in the industry is I was seeing a lot of people would copy something from the server onto their local machine because it was so slow to work over the VPN. And so you've got everyone working on their own version of a file and then 
uploading it back to the server and now we've got conflicted copies of everything and so it's like the you know the people who don't want their their designers working out of the cloud were creating all this hassle where no one knew where anything went because people were basically like I'm not going to work the way you want me to work because it's slowing me down I can't get my work done right and so it becomes a security issue it becomes a productivity issue because you've got all these different files. And I mean, of course, if everyone's working on Revit drawings in BIM 360, we don't have this problem. But if things are living on a server, which is sort of you know behind a firewall somewhere, you've created all these versions of files. And the thing that I think is the most interesting is that it even becomes an HR issue because people are like, why don't you give me the tools I need to get my job done? I mean, that's been one of my lessons learned from really talking to people and, and listening to designers and business owners in the industry is that it really, it upsets people when they're like, you want me doing 3D design, but when I go to render, my laptop crashes. It's interesting to think about from like a procurement standpoint of, of hardware. I mean, you're, yeah, there's, there's two sides, right? There's software and there's hardware. Let's talk about the hardware for a minute. When the pandemic hit, not everybody was using a laptop. And then all of a sudden it was like, man, you better get some laptop orders in as soon as that happened. And and they're like, yeah, we have three on order. And it's like, no, no, you, you got to order like a hundred. Hope that they show up anytime soon. I'm sure that was like every every firm out there. And just thinking about from that kind of fire hose, putting out a fire, putting, you know, that that is a a crazy spot to be in all of a sudden, let alone having the software you need on that, on that thing when you've got to go home and I'm not going to see you. Nobody thought we weren't going to see anybody for, for another year, but everybody thought for two weeks and, and not having a computer for like a week or two or lugging out. It's, it's huge, huge, huge losses in productivity. Yeah. I mean, you saw people taking desktops home and plugging them in and trying to set things up. It was nuts. And I mean, even before all this, we had graphics cards, which you couldn't get because of cryptocurrency mining, right? It already became harder to get the hardware that's needed to do to do design work. But yeah, it was really it was really crazy. Each firm that we helped upgrade kind of in succession, we would go through and they would have to sort of wrap their brains around the fact that they were going to let go of the reins, so to speak, and allow people to work more flexibly, go back and forth, establish a budget. And then, you know, finally like, okay, let's do this. Okay, great. The laptops will be here in four months. (laughs) It was just, (laughs) it was insane. But I mean, I think, you know, something we were talking about before we started recording here, a lot of what we're talking about today, it's really foundational, right? And I think that that's fitting for the industry that we're speaking about. We're, we're building this solid foundation of technology so that people can do their best work, right? You want to be doing you know, 3D rendering and you want to be doing visualizations and you want to be getting your work done in a really productive way. But there's all these pieces that have to be in place underneath, which should be invisible to you, right? I mean, it's a lot like plumbing. Like we don't think about the pipes in our homes, right? We don't think about our foundations for that matter of mm-hmm. our homes, mm-hmm. but if we have to replace them or if they, you know, if they break, then we're really going to be aware of it. And that's what I see is when, when we go into a firm that hasn't had proactive IT management for a while, or, you know, maybe there's like an in-house IT, but they don't have a lot of outside education and sort of a lot of kind of outside ways to help, you know, you kind of like it's so hard to keep up with what's happening from a, from a hardware standpoint, from a security standpoint. And so often what we'll see is like, oh, these are just the graphics cards we always uses, you know, used. This is how we've spec'd things in the past. You know, this is the established practice here. And you come to realize that the established practice has been holding people back. I was wondering if you could just speak to what, so, so one of the the arguments that kept coming up when when I was the head of digital practice was machine specs, and it was always like just above the the baseline. It was never like a fast machine, um, and and fast machines, really fast machines, like the best machine that you can get, was orders of magnitude faster as far as how much time it saves over time. 
that's where I don't think people really think about it. And it's interesting to think about it from that perspective, because in a firm, that is what you sell, is you sell time for money. And it doesn't take a a very big spreadsheet to show what a 20% efficiency gain by getting a a laptop that costs $1,000 more, how what the ROI is on that and then what and then how exponential that is over a period of time of months or a year i, I don't have it in front of me but i think we should uh, i want to put this in the show description um, our mutual colleague sam kevel who is also on the um, technology and architectural practice committee with us for aiala he has some stats he's worked on about that exact figure about how much you can save by getting a machine that's like 10% faster a BIM manager at every firm has made that spreadsheet, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's, yeah, what you're saying is amazing. And, you know, you don't have to buy the crazy top of the line machine. You can get a solid middle of the road machine, which is going to get you three years. Um, and, you know, I mean, so one of the things we recommend to our architect clients specifically is to get laptops on a three year rotational lease. So you're just thinking about your laptops as like a, you know, $100-ish and change monthly payment for each one of your employees. And it's just going to be replaced at the end of three years. And you're not going to end up with a closet full of desktop towers that no one wants that you're going to have to pay someone to come cart away. You're going to have everyone working on machines that right when they're starting to get slow, you're going to get them on the best spec once again. Um, And so that's been something that our firms find really helpful is that you know machines are just sort of on this rotational lease and there's service. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about lease versus buy but it does seem like when you when you think about the used stock at the end of a period and having to manage that and that period is kind of on a revolving schedule because not you don't you don't swap everybody out in the whole firm all at once. You kind of have a budget of 30% per year or whatever it is and it becomes a lot of overhead to manage all that. And, you know, so I mean, we see firms do two different ways. We had a firm recently who preferred to buy the absolute top of the line, best possible machines they could buy, pay for them up front and said, we want to keep these for like four to five years. We don't want to be on a three-year cycle. So we're going to overbuild these so that they can last longer. That's one strategy. But yeah, the one that I prefer is get like a solid, you know, upper middle of the road you know, we've had people working on Dell, some nice like portable Dells and put some nice cards in them. Make sure you get enough um, graphics memory in on the cards and you don't stick people with like some like one or two gig chips by accident. But people are able to do great 3D rendering on some like middle of the road Dell laptops that are sort of like intended for design. I just can't imagine having like a five-year-old GTX card or something and... <laughs> It would be it would be pretty hard to to be that person in the firm who's like just waiting because it's got it just gets so cruft so full of cruft over that over that time yeah exactly it's you know rough. it's not how we prefer it but it's how they wanted to do it and so sometimes we got it you know we got to go that way um, I think it's worth saying too um, for anyone who has an office that you know people are I mean what we see every one of our architecture clients is at a hybrid mode now. People are going in a couple days a week, but people are completely empowered to work from home. I like to just go through the basics of like making sure your internet is stable and making sure your network is stable. Like you shouldn't be having outages, right? Like get two internet connections, upgrade your network every three or four years, like have decent Wi-Fi in your office. Like this stuff is all so boring and so like regular, but especially now that essentially we work out of the cloud. You know, we're down to one server, which is maybe doing some licensing or running some like random apps that need somewhere to run on premises these days or no servers. And so at that, the network better work because you're working out of the cloud. That's one thing to say for an office, but when you do have people working remotely, then you've got a whole other ball of wax, right? Because you've got everybody's personal internet service and it's interesting to me to see companies approach to that 
because a lot of them are really hands off and saying like, that's not our problem. Our problem is what's in the building because they, they keep thinking everybody's coming back soon. Right. So we're not going to worry about that. And now it's turned into two plus years and those people are still on slow connections or maybe they've had to upgrade it out of their own pocket. It seems like a huge missed opportunity for, to keep people happy with a fast internet connection at their house that could be augmented by some funds from a company, but, but also just productivity losses for the whole company. I mean, I think we're lucky at least, you know, for my clients being in Los Angeles, it seems like most people ended up on, you know, a 300 by 20 or a 400 by 30 type of circuit. There is no question. There's a couple of users who were stuck on bad connections but those were people who lived on streets that had no internet. Like where like, Hey, I'm in this apartment building. All I can get is like an AT&T DSL line. I mean, and yes, we had a couple people who like literally could not up, like when they would save a file, it would just fail to upload. But it seemed almost like the companies didn't have to worry about it that much because people want fast internet these days. And it's so cheap. Right. I mean, here in LA, you got, you can get like symmetrical fiber for like a hundred bucks a month in a lot of neighborhoods. So I think what you're saying probably is worse in other regions. It seems like we got lucky, but I agree with you. No one wanted to spend a dollar to help. It was very much, it, it, it fell on us as an outsourced IT provider to help people sort out like, is this problem because your wireless router is all the way across the house and you're trying to work, you know, do teams meetings across the house over, over wireless or what exactly is happening. But the thing no one ever asked us about that we had to sort of remind people about too, is just the security implication, right? If you're doing sensitive projects, like, like, are you working at a coffee shop? Are you, you know, like, what are you on a shared Wi-Fi in your apartment building? Like, what's happening with the network, right? I mean, because you've essentially distributed everything. Yeah, right. And, you know, so, I mean, that was, that was a big thing is, you know, you know, there's the sort of, like, foundational network piece of working from home. And then there's, like, how does security change in working from home? And, I mean, the statistics are showing that all types of breaches and, like, social engineering attacks just went through the roof, because no one was behind a firewall. And I mean, I don't know that corporate firewalls do all that much these days from a security standpoint, that that's probably a controversial statement, but nonetheless, being in an office of other people sort of keeps you on your toes a little bit more Mm -hmm. Yeah, and having it around the corner and all those pieces. Right. And if something does go wrong versus like, you're just working at home by yourself, something happens, you're distracted, you don't notice. I think that that's a very different thing. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. In this podcast, I talk a lot about all the realities with my guests, you know, mixed reality, augmented reality, virtual reality, all the realities. And I've got a new message for you from my friends at Avail. Let's talk about the new reality, which is that content as I've talked about in the previous message from them, both wants and needs to live everywhere. Long gone are the days of saving files to your local hard drive or to a single on-premises server. In order to solve remote collaboration, information has moved to the edge. The cloud is king, and the number of cloud services out there dictate that the number of storage locations will continue to grow dramatically. Where do you store your files? BIM 360, OneDrive, SharePoint, Box, Dropbox, AWS, Azure. Chances are you probably save them in some weird combination of those that I just mentioned and more. Well, here's the point of this message. Avail hides the complexity of where content and information resides. What file to use used to be your biggest concern. Now it's where do all those files live? Avail takes where out of the equation which means that with Avail, you can actually find your mission-critical and not-so-critical files, too, right when you need them. Avail helps get you the information you need faster. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. Systems and Standard Operating Procedures 
You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing the systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by an acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Teeger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com slash masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com slash masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and is brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. And now let's get back to our conversation. Yeah, it was also very different when you think about your entire office workforce being distributed and and you can't just go walk around the corner to the IT room and ask a question. You are now responsible for a, for a lot of that. Of course, they they can remote in and they they're probably sitting in their apartment just like you are and remoting into your computer, but hardwire network issues, router issues, anything like that. It just became your problem. And I think that was a huge burden for a lot of people. I know it was a burden for me just because now I've got kids doing school here. My wife's working here. I'm working here. I had to do some serious network upgrades um, because somebody's on, you know, Zoom all day long. And oh, so am I. Oh, and so is my wife. And there there were just a lot of I became the IT person in in my house. And and everybody in the office is having problems and it's a one-to-one relationship when you're talking to an IT person about getting help, right? They can only really help one person at a time. So that that line got clogged up really fast. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people felt that pain. It was a really stressful period, man. March, March April 2020 was, I mean, IT, everything was IT at that yeah, time. Right, right. And, you know, I'm really, I'm really grateful we had no security incidents over the last two years and things have gone well. And, you know, there really haven't been outages and all of our clients were able to keep working. Um, we didn't lose any clients. I mean, I know providers that lost all their clients because they didn't know how to make this pivot. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you didn't have hybrid work already sort of like firmly entrenched in the way you work, then no, you know, people couldn't trust you anymore. And the, and our clients that weren't in the cloud yet, we had been bugging them to do it for so long that they sort of were like, oh, <laughs> at least at least we know you were talking about this. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Like my father-in-law, you know, he's in his late 70s and he still won't put a credit card number into a web browser. And it's like, you want us to move our whole business to the cloud? That's a scary idea for a lot of people out there who didn't grow up with the digital natives and you know they're they're three or four steps behind because they're late adopters to this this kind of stuff and you know there is risk i think that that's i think that's the thing to remember i mean when i talk to people about the cloud it's it's not that it is without risk right i mean you have a much you have a much greater insider risk like it's much easier for someone to just download your whole server and take it home with them one of your employees when they leave the company not that they couldn't do it before on a usb drive or something if you don't lock that down but i would say that that's a risk a lot of people don't think about um and like we have some tools to prevent against that but they're pretty expensive and most people don't want to use them 
Um, and yeah, there's more, there's more risk of a breach at the same time. You've got much less of a chance of getting seriously negatively impacted by ransomware or any of the threats, right? Once you're in the cloud, it's, everything is more abstracted. It's easier, it's easier to recover. It's harder to lose data. Um, and I think that you're trading that resilience for a higher risk of breach and higher risk of breach. Of course, you know, Microsoft is going to go down one day a year or something like that. Um, we use ignite for all of our architecture clients to store their files. Um, they've been down, I think for 15 minutes in the last three years. I mean, they're pretty good, but you know, it generally seems that your like 20, 40, 50 person firm is going to have more of their own self-induced downtime if they manage everything themselves than these enterprise providers are going to have. But, you know, it's a reality. Yeah. Um, so, so let, well, I mean, let me finish that statement. Yeah. Though. I think it's, it's, it's risk of downtime. It's risk of breach. Um, and it's risk of the insider risk of just people being able to grab everything themselves really easy while they're sitting at home. Um, those are the risks we introduce with cloud. I do think that the benefits outweigh the risks. And I do think that there's there's things we can do to mitigate all of that. But. I wanted to get back to your idea of this foundation. What are the other aspects of that beyond the kind of best practices for hardware? And it sounds like, you know, where you put your files is a piece of that um, with with ignite that you just mentioned but maybe you can elaborate more on the on what kinds of elements are included in this foundation idea yeah. that you have yeah so i mean if we go back to what i was saying before you've got your sort of you've got your internet coming in from the outside you've got that flowing through your network so that things kind of work right you've got the proper hardware in place and what i like to see these days at an office is going to be a good standing desk, nice keyboard, video, mouse, and then a nice dock for a laptop as much as possible so that people are able to come in and work with their same laptop that they're using at home, get that nice kind of in-office work experience, but with a lot of flexibility. You know, and while you're planning that, make sure you get the right dock that's not going to underpower your super fatty laptops. I see that problem happen a lot. You know, make sure you actually know whether your staff prefer one big, you know, 35, 45 inch monitor or do they want two monitors? Because people have opinions about that. Don't just make that decision for them. Um, and so that's like I have a procurement guy in my business who is just like fanatical about getting the right setup for every client. Right. Because there's a lot of aesthetic behind this and usability. So I find all that stuff to be pretty important. Um, and then, yeah, the next, the next thing that comes to mind there is files. And I think what to do with files, it changes a lot based on, like I've given this conversation to a group of sole proprietors. And if you're a sole proprietor, get a Synology NAS, right? Or, you know, use Dropbox. Get in, get in Dropbox Advanced has like a minimum of three users, pay 60 bucks a month, I think, and you've got five terabytes of storage, Right. It doesn't scale well, though. And so almost immediately, the solution that we've landed on is Ignite. There are absolutely other solutions. What we like about Ignite is that they are a vendor who actually is willing to think about the AEC space. Um, like I'm speaking next month, they're doing an AEC data summit. This is this, They did one six months ago. Like they really are, they realize that their solution works well for AEC. And so the reason that it works well for AEC, um, one major reason is that it does file locking on AutoCAD files, on Adobe files, um, and most other solutions won't do that. They have some solutions in place for Revit. I actually think, though, the better thing to do with your designs and Revit is to put them in BIM 360. I would rather see everything in the company stored on Ignite with your with your uh, Revit files in BIM 360, just because there's so many pieces that you can't get if you're not using that. Um, right now, that's cost prohibitive, but I'm imagining that seems like their Autodesk is about one year away from killing Revit network licenses. 
And once everyone has their own Revit subscription, it will probably come with BIM 360 and the world will probably just, you know, people's budgets are going to go way up and they're not going to be happy. I mean, I've got, I've got firms with 25 employees sharing two network licenses for Revit and they're going to about to have to buy 25. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we went through that and, and it was an additional load of hurt because the BIM 360 licenses were in addition to the Revit licenses. And if you want decent access to all these Revit projects, they needed to be upgraded to within the last three versions, most likely the current version, which takes a ton of time. There was no easy way to do that. And, and you got to get everybody used to a new platform as well. Right. So like there was, there was a bunch of expense and it seems like, all of these firms, I mean, Autodesk couldn't have timed it better because, I mean, for their business, right, um, to, to, for this to happen. And, I mean, it was like everybody had to do that, basically, to continue to work. You know, we've all seen it because Adobe did it. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, the bill that people are sending to Adobe every month is staggering. But anyway, so, I mean, going back to that, I see Ignite as just about the best file storage platform and unless you're getting into maybe if you i mean like balfour Beatty uses it right like some of the biggest construction firms and on the globe use it is it because why is it the best is it because it for for us when we were looking at ignite it was that it would replace a bunch of these where people actually do put their files and just make it consistent as like it's the one place that they can go. Well, so the things that work really well, Evan, A, there's that file locking, which, you know, all the other major commercial file sharing vendors don't do file locking on those files. I know there's other solutions that do it, which are niche, but none of the, you know, OneDrive is not going to lock an AutoCAD file. It's not going to lock a Photoshop file. So one of them is file locking. So now we are not ending up with versions, with version mitch version mismatches, which is really bad in design because that's a lot of wasted time. One of them is it deals really well with large files, right? And so it has it has your online only so you can browse the whole server without downloading the files, but it is very resilient at uploading and downloading the large files it needs as you need to open them and as you need to re-upload them. Um, it does file previews really well on a lot more documents than the large commercial players will do. So you can preview DWGs in there and, you know, you can preview Adobe files and you can just get a good graphical experience of what you're dealing with in Ignite, which I struggle with in the other platforms. If you are an office, if you're a firm that has multiple locations and wants people to work on premise hardware for the speed um, they have a solution to replace what Microsoft had with DFS, Distributed File System. They have something called Turbo, which will cache files into each branch location and will allow you to access them rapidly. You can even use something called Storage Sync, which will actually not just sort of cache files, but will actually give you a local stored copy that people are working on. So they're very flexible in dealing with multiple branches. and trying to think if and, and it just works well it's just like absolutely rock solid it does plug into teams as well i believe so like it, it'll re replace the file sharing in teams yeah yeah you can put a tab in teams with the with ignite and they have a lot of workflows built in that i haven't seen people using as much but you know you can assign tasks you can do a lot with it and they also have um like project Project lifecycle management, if you upgrade sort of off the base plan into the next plan up, so you can set retention on projects, you can move things to an archive that's much cheaper. So they sort of understand that we have production storage, archive storage. And so the, they understand the needs of people who work on very, very large files in a distributed way. And, and from an IT perspective, it never breaks. I mean, that's like, because that's the... Like that's the table stakes. If my company's going to sell something, absolutely cannot be troubleshooting. Why didn't this sync? Like that's not what my techs want to be doing. And this isn't a, a paid advertisement by Ignite in any way, but I think it's worth saying all this because if there is a solution out there, 
people should know about it. If there is something that quote unquote just works, people should know about it. And it doesn't mean something else isn't going to come along or that there might be a better fit. But instead of going to google.com and typing in a cloud file server with local backup and or whatever, I just listen, just start here. This is the place to start. Exactly. Just just start somewhere, right? So if you're a sole proprietor, maybe not Ignite, but once you're few bigger than that, it's great. Now, I know we've sort of we've spent a lot of time kind of talking about network, talking about file storage. I know we're going to run out of time here and not too long. There's a couple of things I want to touch on, though. Um, one of them is the last thing about if or two quick things about the physical office. One of them is setting up a conference room situation that works for today's hybrid environment where we might have half the team in the office on Mondays and half the team in the office on Tuesdays. What I see, I mean, I was in a, I was in a large firm's conference room a couple of weeks ago and there was like all these gadgets and all this stuff. Right. And at the end of the day, we just plugged in with an HDMI cable and like didn't use any of the gadgets because it's always too complicated. We found this product called a meeting owl. It's a thousand bucks. It's got a 360 degree camera on it with a microphone and a speaker. And you stick it in the middle of the conference room table and everyone at the table can hear, be heard and be seen. And it's like, that's the kind of solution I want, right? I don't want a like $45,000 audio visual setup for like this architect's conference room. Right. And so like one thing I'm going to say is that is like as more and more, I mean, I think this last Omicron shutdown is probably about the end of the major shutdowns unless we're unless things are really going to change. And I think now we got a famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> so I think now we got to think about what is it like to be back in the office in a much more remote world, um, in a much more flexible world, too. Right. Because one of the things that we're, we've always fought is that anybody who remotes into those meetings is a second class citizen. And so you've got to find ways in this hybrid environment to treat everybody at the first class level. And that could mean like, don't go to the conference room. Everybody stays at their desk in the, who are in the office and, you know, quote unquote remotes into the meeting, even if they're in the same place as, as some of the other people in the office. But yeah, it's interesting to hear about technology being able to solve this in a better way than what we're used to. Yeah. So that's a really good one. And also think about the marketing angle for your company, right? If your people look bad and sound bad on meetings. That's embarrassing. Like this is an aesthetic industry. I totally agree with that. And I'm always shocked at the quality level that I still see people presenting with. And I'm thinking like this, I've said it before, this is the new dress attire for business. It is your camera. It is your audio. It is your lighting. It is all of those things that actually matter. And again, you have to have a higher level than the default crappy webcam on your laptop because you're going to quote unquote, go back to the office real soon. And you don't need to worry about that. Like that, that is not the case at all. And it is not expensive to get a Logitech Brio and like a blue microphone. Like you don't need to go spend $5,000. The last piece of premise stuff that I think is really cool. Um, we do access control, sort of like replacing the key fobs that buildings like generally will give you where you need a HID key card. Um, we do access control with a, with a company called OpenPath where people can get into the office just using an app on their cell phone. And, and the office manager, if they're out of the office on Tuesdays now, they can click a button in their app and they can let somebody into the office who needs to be let in. And so sort of like bringing access control into the cloud is super, super handy as, as the world is changing and as people are sort of in and out of the office a lot more. Um, so in terms of the office, that's the stuff that I would say, you know, is the, the internet, the network, the laptops, the, the, the working stations, the conference room, the way to get into the office. Yeah. I love all this like really actionable stuff. I, I'm wondering if you have any tips from experiences that you've had over the last couple of years about actual collaboration over the internet when it comes to design work. You know, we have less direct hands into that with our clients is what I'll say. Um, what I see people doing the most, I mean, I think the things that work the best for people is using something like Miro. 
So having people do virtual whiteboarding and what I saw with clients is that some of the people were using Teams or Zoom and they hated the stuff that was built in. Every single one of them ended up on Miro on their own and we helped them implement it. Um, So that seems really, really important. Another thing that seems really important to people is to be able to sketch on iPads so that they can do a quick markup from out of the office and they can share that with people. And again, using Miro and using those pieces. And so basically people putting in a Miro tab into Teams for their meetings, getting off the built-in Microsoft whiteboarding, um, marking things up from iPads, and then just having people sort of have their tools work correctly, have the right headsets, like be able to sort of communicate with each other in the right way. Those are the things that I saw the most. Um, I know, though I don't have a lot of direct experience with it, it sounds like the tools inside of BIM 360 are another huge, huge piece of that. Interesting to think about like all of these software as a service and giving people yet another place to stick stuff. On one level, it, it makes sense if you think about it that way. It's like, where is the Miro board? Oh, it's on, it's on Miro. But when it comes to having backups of that stuff or just archives of old projects and they don't really have file systems built into them. So you get a very cluttered interface when you go to open a project and things like that. Do you have any kind of best practices when it comes to SaaS services that are, that's a redundant statement, that are out there? And and like, like I said, it's just a repository for stuff. Is is it best just to leave your stuff there and it's and it, your stuff is in Figma and your stuff is in Miro? Or, or is there an actual protocol that people will follow? I'll add that as a caveat to get this stuff backed up and on-premises somewhere on a server so it can be archived properly. So the properly. thing that I'll say is it's really going to be up. It's going to be up more to like a studio's operations manager or the project managers to pull this off. But let's use Miro as an example. The the two things that can make this easier, number one would be like to create a channel or a team in Teams for every project and then have someone as part of project initiation add the Miro folder for that project into there, right? So that, okay, I know on this project we're talking about, you know, like maybe we're talking about milestones in a chat, or maybe we have some sort of Gantt showing up somehow in a Teams tab. We have the Miro tab. We have the Ignite tab, right? So at least I can say, oh, when I'm working on this project, I go here and I can find everything. Um, But to your point, um, I think about that a lot in a few different ways. I think about it with emails, right? And then are people using something like Mail Manager or New, New Former, right? Is the one that does filing or, you know, or tonic. Uh, or tonic. Yeah. So you've got new forma at this sort of, you know, giant budget level. And then you have mail manager and tonic, which skin solved the same problem in slightly different ways. So I've got clients that are just, you know, PDFing emails that are important and saving them in the project folder and ignite. I'd love to see more people using mail managers or, or tonics. Um, and if we go to something like Miro, you should be saving PDFs of stuff, right? Like if I'm going to need to go back and reference this, save a PDF of it and put it in the folder. Let, let Miro be in, you know, iterative location, but at least a final product that's important, spit it out. Um, no one is going to listen to their outsourced IT provider about that. It has to come from internal. Yeah. It's interesting to think about uh, a lot of these SaaS products where, the file is not snapshots in time. They're not discrete files anymore. And so you have to intentionally create archives at milestones to do that. Even your BIM 360 project is designed to just be a continuous model from beginning to end. And and so you kind of have to apply that same rigor to backing up those archives at milestones in a PDF, like in the, in the case that you're talking about just so that you know where you were when you were told to proceed to the next phase of design, right? And that all becomes kind of procedural standards-based stuff that operations has to take on, which is probably different than they've had to operate in the past, which makes it hard to do. And 
I mean, this is this is the battle. This is this is why it's great to talk to somebody who's done it and done it across the industry for different firms to say, hey, this is actually working. And it's not just my advice. It's this is what's working in all these different firms. And I think a lot of firms then are it's easier for them to bite it off if they don't feel like they're the first ones doing it. I don't know if you've done a show about this yet, Evan, but I was I was proposing um, to the to the committee that I work with at the AIA in LA said like we should do some sort of like mini workshop about information management from like you know in terms of archiving emails and in terms of like all those what do you call the sort of extracurricular pieces of a project right because like people know how to not lose their design files people are pretty good about saving their files on the server especially once we give them the cloud and things work correctly. But there is so many disparate pieces that are out there now. And I think sort of building some best practices around those that people in the industry can use are are really interesting. Yeah, I like this idea of the foundation that you've got because it does kind of hit some of the major pain points. And then, man, but you could just fill it in with so many smaller grains of sand around that that are all over the place. You mean, you could, you're going to have apps on your phone. You're going to have apps on your iPad. You're going to have apps on your laptop. You're going to have other pieces of hardware and software that fill in all these little pain points that you have to deal with sometimes on a project. Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest burdens when people are thinking about technology is like there aren't people who do that thing all the time. Like projects have phases and they have this kind of arc to them. And you might use this one piece to solve this one thing at that one time in the project. And then you're not going to come back to it for two years, right? Till, and that makes things, I think, even a little bit more of a burden. And, and that app vendor probably will have shut down by then, or your account's going to be deactivated. <laughs> Don't say that. Oh my gosh. It's true. It's I mean, true. It, it happens, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think the things that we haven't spoken about today that are really interesting to me, one of them is the... We've been working really, really hard to build, you know, the, the traditional way that um, la- new machines were deployed in an industry like IT is there would be an image. Someone would sort of create one golden master image. And then as long as I had the exact same model laptop, I could take that image and put it on that computer. Which is like, yeah. How how realistic is that? <laughs> That's not it realistic. It doesn't fly. I mean, it's never... it's been very hard in in my whole career and we've been really focused on building the right cloud management tools that we can throw every single app you need including most of the design apps that people are using these days we can get the right version of that onto your machine and we can keep it up to date which i mean even autodesk doesn't really have like command line parameters to run against the autodesk updater tool to update the applications. And I'm almost at that nirvana where we can get those things updated, even though Autodesk doesn't even want to officially support it. But if we can, if you can roll out a laptop, sign in with your Microsoft account, plug it into power and let it sit there while Revit, AutoCAD, Lumion, Enscape, BlandEffect, SketchUp, Bluebeam, V-Ray and everything else just appears on there it, on any model. doesn't matter what the computer is and all your drivers are going to be up to date and your windows are going to be up to date. And if your machine's malfunctioning, we can just have you reset it from your house and leave it for 12 hours and it's back. That's something we've been working really, really hard on. That does sound like Nirvana. <laughs> that sounds it's, it's getting damn close and then we to didn't hear. touch on security today which is huge i don't think we need to go there right now but it's it's really really important but i'm going to give one security tip that all of you can go do for free on all those cloud apps right now which is turn on two factor authentication it's free i have it a question gets rid for of you 90 95% of breaches according to microsoft well, that that's good to hear. I I I agree with that, but I want to know straight from you. I already think I know the answer to this, but a lot of people provide their cell phone number uh, for SMS verification. It's two factor, and it is pretty easy, from my understanding, to get somebody's cell phone number and to spoof it or to steal a phone or whatever. So, what's your recommendation when it comes to that? Do you have a, an app of choice that you prefer for two factor? Well. 
I mean, I have a few different answers. So you're right. SMS is less secure because people can steal phone numbers. People can do different. People can essentially trick your cell phone provider into giving them your phone number. What I recommend for most firms is if your email provider is Microsoft, then you use the Microsoft Authenticator. If your email provider is Google, use the Google Authenticator. Um, I then I have a password manager that we use and all of our clients use, which is called Keeper. And what we can do in Keeper is if there's some account that multiple people need to share, you can add two-factor codes directly into Keeper as well and share them amongst people. You can also go with something like Cisco makes a tool called Duo, which all it does is two-factor authentication. But I think for most people, the best answer is to use your primary emails authenticator tool because using Microsoft as an example, when I'm logging into my Microsoft account, I just get a prompt on my phone that says, do you approve this? Yes. But if I was using Authy, which is another tool I like for two-factor authentication, I'd have to go get the code and type it in. Google and Microsoft sometimes like to show you a number, make sure the number matches. And I just find that they work almost as well as something that's going to cost more and they're free. And it really lowers the barrier to adoption. Yeah, I think that that taking that one step out of having to type the code in is is huge when it comes to like Microsoft Authenticator. Yeah, that's yeah. huge. And I mean, the other thing that I like to really remind people is do training. So if you're not, if you don't have some kind of program in place to send phishing tests to everyone in your company to see who's going to click, that's really important. Um, one of the things that I like to do personally is I lead one hour uh, training workshops to essentially help the staff know that this is a relevant topic for them in their personal lives, at their work life, like in their sort of civic duty life. Like there is not a part of our life, which is not online, which means that good cyber security hygiene applies everywhere. Like your kids in school need to know about it, right? You need to know about it so you don't lose your vacation photos. Like it's not just prevent ransomware. So the boss doesn't lose money. So I lead trainings and I've noticed that when people get it with a sense of humor and they realize this is not just some boring work thing, it, it, they become really vigilant. I finally got one of my employees to click a link after testing him for four years. And it was like the stupidest thing. It was some like, you know, fitness, weight loss advice, blog, fake post. Like I send them all the hard stuff and they don't fall for it. <laughs> So <laughs> that's awesome. You know, two well, factor and, and training are so big and those aren't about the tools. Those are right. about the practices. Yeah. That's hygiene. Like you said, and, and that training is also hygiene on the business's part to continually do training and not just say, yep, we did it this once this year. We're, we're done for X amount of time. Another year you've got turnover. You've got people who weren't paying attention. They were doing email during that presentation whatever. And that kind of stuff does need to come up on a, on a pretty normal recurring basis. And the thing to know is that you're not going to be able to get cyber insurance to protect you against ransomware if you're not doing these cyber hygiene best practices. And this year is going to be brutal, really, really brutal. People are having their, uh, people are having their coverages cut in half while their premiums are doubling. So if you're if you're still listening this late in the game, reach out to your insurance broker and ask them what's going to happen with this year's cyber renewal. Or if you don't have cyber insurance, ask them what it's going to take to get it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Josh, this has been uh, eye opening, I think. And also, I'm sure a lot of people are like, oh, this is kind of a, you know, like you said, table stakes kind of stuff. And, and you might think it's boring. But if you don't get this stuff right. It just makes everything else that much more painful. So I appreciate you taking the time to share. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Where can people find out more about what you do and, and follow along online with what your company's up to? Yeah, so we're lacreativetech.com, L-A creative, T-E-C-H, and our socials everywhere is L-A creative tech. Um, and I also uh, co-founded the AIA LA's technology and architectural practice along with uh, Mr. Evan Troxel himself. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm happy to be on that committee and we've got a lot of events planned all year long. 
yeah, join us. That's gonna be that's gonna be good stuff. And I think we'll hear a lot more about everything digital as our worlds uh, merge into the metaverse. <laughs> uh, anyway, this has been a great conversation. Thanks, man. I appreciate your time. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.